Hello friends and welcome to Reaching Out. Today's chat is with Nikos Zarikos and I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. Nikos studied applied mathematics at the University of Berkeley and after graduation he became a data consultant at a medical facility in San Francisco. We cover a lot of ground in this episode but we start by talking about his work and the impact of coronavirus pandemic. We discuss predictive modeling and its value of directional information, and around halfway through, we switch the subject to mathematics and philosophy around it. And also, he introduces us to his favorite formula, Euler's equation. This may sound technical, but Nico is a great storyteller, so there are plenty of anecdotes to look out for here. I hope you enjoy this episode, and without further ado, this is Nikos Zarikos. So... How's work right now? And what's your routine like in the lockdown? Because uh, you're 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 working in a hospital, right? You're a data scientist in a hospital. Um, how does that work out? Yes. Um, so I'm a data consultant, and I work in a medical facility. So I work for a healthcare organization. Medical facility meaning you can you can imagine it as a campus, probably like when you go to the doctor. There's main different departments. There's like a hospital, might be a cardiologist, etc. So it's that type of environment. I don't actually work inside the hospital building itself, uh, but I do enter the building because, um, I mean, I got hired to do data. I consult with doctors. I help them become more efficient to help them run the departments, essentially. I, I help them with their operations. But ever since COVID happened, uh, our roles changed. We had to adapt. Uh, basically, everyone in the facility had to figure out how can I become valuable you know, during this time. And so doing my normal job wouldn't be probably the most valuable thing right now. And so I can talk a little bit about that more later because now my job is transitioning back into looking at operations and the effect that COVID will have moving forward. But while COVID hit, uh, my routine changed completely. So I was put in charge, uh, along with other people on my team, we were put in charge of counting PPE, which is a buzzword <laughs> in the media lately, uh, personal protective equipment. These are things like gloves, masks, gowns, uh, also including COVID test kits, which it actually took me some time to understand that that's what I'm counting because it's just a swab. Um, it's, you know, I was imagining this little box of some sort where you take a test and it does the analysis for you, but it doesn't work that way. Um, so for the past six weeks, I would say that's what I've been involved in mainly is monitoring our PPE at our facility. Um, it started off with just counting and then it became, I was building a model to calculate when we're going to run out of PPE. Um, but in short, we were doing all these things because we were expecting a surge of patients. So this was in conjunction with nurses and doctors and chiefs trying to figure out how they can find more space for ICU beds. So we were working with them. I was doing the PPE side of it and they were trying to redesign the hospital plan. So my routine is a bit odd because now that's my daily chore pretty much. Um, everyone I know that lives here also abroad, they are, all, they are all working from home except for myself. So I still go to the office twice a week and I work from home three times a week. Um, so it's a bit unusual because on one hand, when this whole started and I was still going to work, the roads were empty. There was no one outside. But as I've been going on week after week, there's actually more and more people on the road. There's more cars, there's more traffic, there's more things going on, you know. Um, so 
it's been unusual. It's been unusual having this feeling of knowing I'm going to work uh, during this strange time. And I don't want to say dealing directly with COVID because those are the nurses and those are the doctors, but I'm supporting those people. And so in some way I'm participating in that, in that effort, you know, so it's just unusual. I'm learning a lot about, first of all, the healthcare organizations as a whole, but also it's been interesting to see how, uh, just how healthcare groups navigate uncertainty. You know, they have to make all these risks, they have to make all these assumptions, and ultimately, because healthcare is privatized here, it's it's a business decision. So it all comes down to some sort of business business insight. So it's been interesting. And it feels like the entire world has been dependent on some sort of models of how this virus is going to spread, what's the R naught, um, how are people picking, how, how can people get infected with it, what are the supplies of PPE, as you're doing right now. Do you think that these models, generally, this kind of modeling, has taken us in the right direction? and has shown the picture that has predicted the picture that we're seeing today. Do you think those models were right or wrong generally? Because there's there's so many different models and it feels like right now we're reaching a stage where the models overestimated the impact significantly. Mm-hmm. And there's an interesting article on that from Peter Atia. I think I've sent it to you, right? And it could be twofold, the reason why those models overestimated the impact. One is because of the lockdown and quarantine measures, we've been able to reduce our not significantly. That's why we're seeing a lot less people infected and the curves are starting to flatten and, and uh, decrease um, sooner than expected. Or the disease itself, the, sorry, the virus itself, is not as transmissible as previously assumed. So what's your take on that? Because that's exactly, I know you're doing the PPE side of things, but you seem to be in the right place to give an opinion on it. Yeah, Um, it's a good question. So on one hand, just to talk about the models a little bit, um, the New York Times released five different models, basically, that everyone is following. One would be the Imperial College in London, their model, which predicted that the U.S. death toll would be 2.2 million. That was following the exponential growth. There's an MIT model as well. There's the IHME model. There's all these different models that, like you said, they show different things. And yes, uh, you know, you have to be always cautious with models. You know, models, they... Um, I I tend to think of them as a little bit like experiments in the sense that uh, they work well when all conditions that they're assuming are constant, right? Just like an experiment. You don't want to change the temperature. You don't want to change the environment, whatever. There's a difficulty I faced when building my model for PPE. Uh, I've been working with, first of all, national data, um, publicly available data, as well as the county that I work in, because we are we are ultimately we are interested in seeing how this affects our our place of work. Um, it's difficult because you actually realize how this is not a good experiment at all. This isn't these are not the good conditions uh, for a model, and it's because politics gets in the way. Uh, basically, every week there's a new event. So, 
you know, mid-March we had a quarantine in place. That completely changes the data. That completely changes the behavior of the data. You know, someone could argue, yeah, okay, it's still a subset of maybe what we would expect, but every week there's a new event. So after that, then there's different states in America, like Georgia, which have recently said on Monday, we're going to open beauty parlors and nail salons, et cetera, and hairdressers. So my point is the conditions change every week. And it's actually difficult for me to build a model that I could go to my boss and say, I am proposing this to you with confidence, you know, because ultimately I'm not, because there is an assumption that next week something could happen and the curve goes up or the curve goes down. It just depends on the behavior of, of the people, the behavior, you know, changes the policies, uh, politics, et cetera. So I don't want to blame the models. It's just more the idea that we have to be cognizant of the fact that they are models and models operate under specific conditions, under specific assumptions. And if you change those assumptions, there's a very good chance the model will change. You know what I mean? So again, I think this goes back to bringing it back home to where I work. Uh, it has to do with navigating through uncertainty, you know, and these are business decisions. So how do you reconcile models with changes in behavior that we see outside with the correct business decision to make? One thing that I was discussing with a colleague of mine, and we were saying we both build a lot of models uh, for uh, as part of our profession, and we've learned that whatever you feed the model is what that's exactly what's going to output, right? So mm -hmm. it also feels like at the beginning we just didn't have the, the right data in order to input it and that perhaps maybe that's why we um, see that the current impact is a lot maybe lower let's say than initially predicted like you said there were models that predicted 2.2 million deaths in the US and by the way we actually still don't know if that is going to be um, the case or not maybe the time frames will be different right but Mm -hmm. It feels like we don't know whether there's going to be a resurgence of this uh, virus. And my feeling is, if I were to build a model on it, I don't think that the curve is going to fall enough, let's say, during the summer, even though I know there's some interesting research coming out of the United States that sunlight uh, kills the virus. Also, interesting announcements about uh, disinfectants. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> I encourage you not to follow that advice. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, I will I will take your word for it. You do yeah. <laughs> work in a medical facility. <laughs> but what's your take about... Do you, do you think that these models have served the society well? Yes. Um... So one thing that I've learned through my work, particularly through my manager is, you know, I, I'm someone with a background in mathematics, meaning that when I, when, if someone asked me to build a model, my first thought is about accuracy, because that's what my training would be in, let's say. But I did learn quickly through my job that you do need to recognize when you need to provide directional information, meaning that perhaps accuracy isn't as important as the overall message, meaning that 
if the outcome is saying take this decision instead of this decision, that would be more directional as opposed to putting a solid value on it. And there are other times where you have to realize, you know, the client or whoever they are interested in the most accurate outcome possible. So I think in terms of a directional information, the models did serve us well. I can only talk about the place I live, but uh, definitely uh, there was this Medium article going around before our shelter in place that first really vocalized the or visualized the idea of flattening the curve. And that's a, that's a directional, you know, of course, we can get into the nitty gritty of what it says. But overall, the, the things that I see that people took out of it from where I live is they understood that, OK, I need to stay home or do my part in order to flatten the curve. So they're not really thinking in terms of details, they're thinking in terms of direction. And the models did help change the behavior of everyone that I see. Everyone's taking it very seriously where I live. Uh, I haven't heard of any silly cases or someone acting inappropriately or dangerously. You know, so in that sense, I think the models did help the layman understand the kind of behavior that they should take in order to provide for society, you know, have a good impact. So on that front, yes. On that front, yes. I think it's more difficult when you want to speak to someone who needs to make a business decision when they're trying to also think about the competition, think about how the, comp the competitors are dealing with this. Uh, not only the traditional competitors, but things that are up and coming, so, you know, different ideas with healthcare here, startups that are offering very different types of services of healthcare. So when it comes to that, Fortunately, I'm not in the I'm not in the position to make that decision, <laughs> but I imagine it's more difficult there. What what kind have you seen? What kind of startups have you seen emerge within this um, time frame of COVID and the different healthcare that needs to be the different type of service that needs to be provided today? I haven't seen a specific startup that came because of this. You know, I haven't seen a startup that's reacting, that emerged because of the coronavirus. But I can I can talk about uh, virtual care. And um, over the past uh, 10 years, don't quote me on that number, but healthcare organizations or healthcare facilities, they've been poor, at least in the United States, they've been putting money to change care to become virtual because it's actually much more efficient for the hospital. You spend less uh, doctor-physician time, which ultimately has to do with finances and becoming more efficient. And uh, through virtual care, through our technology, you actually do receive the same type of care, same quality of care, sometimes even better. Of course, I'm leaving out some exceptions, like if you need to see an oncologist or something like that. But for the most part, for um, the department that we call adult family medicine, which is where that's the core, uh, I would say, business of any medical facility. That's uh, where you go see your primary care physician and they, you know, your kind of checkups. That's that department. Um, so they do provide the same quality of care virtually. However, people have always preferred to see their physician face to face. And it just has to do with the traditional feeling. Uh, you know, I was like that as well. You know, I would always prefer to see my physician face to face or in their office, as opposed to calling a nurse or perhaps even having a video chat. Uh, so they were pouring money into this uh, because they knew that this is one inefficiency and the way forward is to tackle that problem. It wasn't gaining a lot of traction with the patients. Coronavirus solved that in one in one month, literally. Uh, in one month, we saw across the board, across all departments, now we have 60% of all of our appointments 
our virtual care, either video or telephone. And uh, we're speaking in the meetings that I'm in, in the people that I speak to, my clients, the stakeholders, they see this as an opportunity because this is a huge opportunity for them that they've been trying to work on for a long time. And now they're saying like, this is an opportunity moving forward. We want to make this permanent. We want this to be one of the new, like the innovative ways to receive healthcare moving forward should be through virtual care. Um, so startups that are doing well are the ones, health startups are doing well, are the ones that have had that infrastructure. There are small startups that they only focus on this adult family medicine. You know, they don't try to incorporate acupuncture or pediatrics or whatever that their business, their market is tackling this core part of the medical facility department and they set it up their infrastructure in to be virtual generally and so as coronavirus has hit i think i don't i don't want to speak to the business side of things i don't know how their finances are doing but in terms of receiving care it's playing into that hand you know it's there are so many negative things of course we could say about coronavirus but from my work the one positive thing i have noticed is this huge opportunity to uh, really innovate care moving forward I think it's also changing a number of other things outside healthcare. So, for example, organizations across the world, large corporates have been trying for years to become more digital. Mm-hmm. And they've spent a lot of money employing consultants, asking them how. And there's certainly been uh, a good adoption rate, right? But now, what we're seeing today, the adoption is unprecedented, right? Everybody's working from home. We see what's happening with Zoom. We see what's happening with Teams. All these companies in a matter of a day have become digital. You know, they're they, all of a sudden, their systems have all of their employees on board speaking to each other. And I have uh, friends who thought that they could never do their job working from home just because they don't have the information flow, mm-hmm. right? Because they're a broker and they need to speak all the time, you know, to their colleagues and and they need to exchange that information constantly. And yet it's working out just fine. It's, it's changed people's opinions about working from home. And I'll tell you an interesting anecdote. We thought to renew our contract with our landlord, my flatmates and I. But we thought, let's let's see, you know, these are economically uncertain times. Maybe we can negotiate a lower end. So we sent a, an email asking, can we? Waited for a couple of days, which is unusual for our landlord. He's usually quick to reply. But when he did reply, he said this. He said, I'm not offering any rent reduction. In fact, um, household properties are being used more than ever now because people are working from home, so we're seeing more wear and tear. And in fact, there's a there's a good reason to increase rent. And mm. I thought that's that's a very valid point. And I think a lot of corporates are going to reduce their physical presence, physical space, real estate. Mm. A lot more people are going to work from home going forward. And I think generally going back to your healthcare thing, I think it's good 
that people are adopting this digital cons consultations with uh, GPs or you know family doctors because ultimately more people can have access to these appointments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't think about that in terms of uh, real estate, <laughs> more wear and tear. That's interesting. Uh, it's it's a fair point, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, <laughs> um, so we had to just nod and uh, yeah, <laughs> and agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's how a relationship is, but yeah. um, we try to be understanding. Yeah. <laughs> But I think it it's it's got you're right in terms of patients, right? They're they're too worried about getting um, infected. They don't want to go into the hospital, mm -hmm. and they want to. Um, well, it's just it's just a way to protect themselves, right? But I do wonder whether on. And then we're able to see, we're able to get the data about this afterwards, probably once the coronavirus is gone. So once we have an adoption of the service that is significant enough, is the level of care the same as it was in person, or in fact is it going to drop a little? And it would be interesting to see how we can assess that. It would be interesting. Um... If the care dropped, I, I know I'm going to say something obvious, but just to also explain a little bit how the metrics work. Um, if it were to drop, that would result in, first of all, competitors jumping up, like taking opportunity of that. Um, but as well, so a, I work for a corporation in the sense that we have different facilities in different cities across the country. And so financially speaking, uh, first money, profits get centralized and then they allocate it to different facilities and the way they would allocate it is they first look at certain metrics to see how you're performing as well as the demand so if one of the core uh, metrics is quality quality and experience so if quality were to decrease that actually has huge financial impacts on a healthcare or a medical facility so i can say that from what I see, you know, doctors are, first of all, extremely intelligent people, but also so passionate about their patients. Uh, I don't know how other organizations work, but for the company that I work for, the physicians are the stakeholders. So they have a huge um, incentive. I mean, I don't want to paint any picture that there's any doctor out there that doesn't care about their patients, but speaking in a business sense, they are extremely incentivized to think about their patient experience. So there are small hiccups I have heard. Basically, uh, <laughs> there are people, there are patients that do not have email addresses. There are patients that do not have computers, which for me as a 25-year-old is such a shocking uh, thing to think about. But the hiccups are more on that part, more on bandwidth, you know, small hiccups in the connectivity between physician and patient, but not in terms of the actual procedures or the care, if you know what I mean. Uh, I know these these things do factor into your experience for care, but in terms of the information the physician can provide, as well as the kind of, like, is there a difference between what a physician can provide virtually versus in person? No. Okay, maybe not an injection. You might have to go in for that. But for the most part, no. So 
they are trained to provide the same quality care and they are hopeful that it can be even better virtually. It could be it could be better, but again, there has to be a very strict rule about what can be treated online and what can't be. And I'm sure there's uh, there's been a lot of thinking on that front, and there's specific sort of questionnaires or or procedures that a patient or a doctor has to follow when organizing an appointment with a with a patient virtually. But there is also in the in the UK, you know what we've been seeing? We've been seeing that other services are suffering right now because of coronavirus, right? Because there is so much attention uh, to mitigating the impact of coronavirus and expanding your capacity of ICU beds, uh, ventilators, PPE, that hospitals are basically suffering from lacking other equipment or uh, other appointments and patients are not as active when it comes to booking appointments for re their regular checkups and regular screenings so we're you know the fear is that we might see a large increase in undiagnosed breast cancers because there is just less screenings taking place how how are you tackling that aspect? Is the question, how are we tackling the, um, the lack of screenings in a sense? How are you trying to balance care for non-coronavirus patients? Yeah, um, so essentially the directors and the managers of their different departments. I've been working very closely with the emergency department, so I can speak a little bit about that. Um, one thing to remember is every department in, is basically its own business structure. So I can't say the same thing works in emergency department as it does for occupational medicine or occupational therapy or physical therapy. They're just completely different business structures. But they, on a, on a typical year, um, they, they, do set, they do know. Uh, how many, for example, ICU beds they will need for the entire year. And it's actually shockingly low. Um, this is something like when I tell people, they're like, wow, really? Um, for example, if you have, if you're expected to serve um, 150,000 people, um, those are your members. I'm not talking about the actual number of appointments that you would have in a year, but the population that you expect to serve. You only need about 20 ICU beds. For the entire year on a normal 150,000 yeah. patients being served, and you only need 20 ICU beds. Yeah. Again, this is about population. So if you were to sum the total number of appointments, not, not that appointments are any indication of ICU, but anyway, uh, you know, just to make that distinction, um, yeah, you only need about 20. Um, it might be different according to your population. If you're dealing with a population that's generally older or of a different ethnicity, because sometimes different ethnicities have different um, dispositions to some, for example, diabetes, or you know they have different dispositions to different diseases. Um, taking that into account, okay, there might be a, a small change. Maybe you need more beds or fewer beds. But for the most part, I think it's 
when I tell someone, you know, they're surprised because I, I believe they would expect a much higher number of ICU beds for those people. So in the coronavirus time, it's more about understanding how can we expand our ICU bed capacity while still having set aside room to deal with car accidents, which are still going to happen, heart attacks, which are still going to happen, COPD, uh, pulmonary diseases, et cetera, renal failures, you know, things that do still happen that do still require ICU um, bedding. You still need to take that into account. So they're not really they're not really approaching this of, okay, let's think of it as the grand sum of beds that we can provide. They're thinking it of what's the coronavirus space that we need. Like what, what are we expecting from coronavirus? How can we accommodate that space without sacrificing any other service for for the other things that we expect, like car crashes, et cetera, et cetera. So I wouldn't say in terms of a spacing issue or in terms of a bedding issue. Again, I'm also talking, I live in California. So I'm, you know, if you talk to someone from New York who works in a medical environment, because they went through a huge surge, they might have uh, something different to say. But for here, at least, it's not really about the spacing, I don't think. I don't think it's also about the bedding. I think it's more about the equipment, like ventilators, uh, you know, that type of specificity, uh, you know, because there might be coronavirus patients that do need the same equipment that an ICU bed needs to provide as well. And just going back to the fact that we do expect on a normal year to only have 20 beds fully operationally with all these expensive equipment, maybe equipment becomes an issue. I haven't heard of it happening yet where I work or in California as a whole, but I hope that answered your question. So they're not sacrificing uh, spacing or bedding for any other care or any other issues. They're just thinking about how do we expand what we currently have. And I'll give you an example. So going back to this virtual care, you do have some... So sorry, going back to virtual care, as well as remembering that patients are not coming in physically to the campus, uh, you do find clinics like urology whose procedures are currently non-existent. Um, also, a personal example, my ACL tear, I was expected to have a surgery, but it got canceled because it's a non-essential surgery. Um, so you do have procedures that if they're not, uh, not essential, if they're not urgent, People are going to, you know, your physician reaches out to you and says, basically, we're going to hold back on this. Urology, um, I don't know if this is across the board, but for where I work, just as an anecdote, uh, you know, for an entire month, they were not expected to have procedures. So that's a prime example or a prime uh, candidate to turn their space into uh, COVID rooms because we're not expecting to use that space at all. So it's more about how do we refurbish existing clinics, existing spaces without sacrificing procedures or care, obviously. But, you know, how do we work with what we have dealing with the new reality of people are, there's no procedures in some places and there's not patients coming in. So how can we use that space and transform it into um, ICU bedding for or hospitalizations for uh, coronavirus patients? And going back to the number 20 of ICU beds for a population of 150,000, what are the reasons why, forget coronavirus, but what are the reasons why you need so few? Is that because the turnover is very high and very quick? It has to do with length of stay, for sure. Um, probably. So all this is driven by 
being a private private healthcare, right? Being a business. So probably as it turns out, the most efficient number that still serves, that still allows you to serve everyone that needs to be served while minimizing the cost is probably that number, at least for this population. Um, length of stay does take a huge part in this um, in terms of resource consumption. But I guess it's just that generally on a month-to-month -month basis, there's actually a very small proportion of people that do need the ICU. And from what I see, uh, I'm not the expert on this, but I've had, I have worked with ICU data before. It seems like a lot of it are chronic conditions like COPD or renal failure, basically conditions where you, the physicians do expect to see you repeatedly, maybe every two weeks you come back or every week you come back, something like that, something, something chronic or something that's ongoing that they do it. They, they're aware of what's going to happen. Basically, my point is I haven't come across spikes in monthly data where there's a lot of dangerous or horrific car crashes, for example, you know? So for the most part, throughout an entire normal year, the volume is very steady. So basically, it's a perfect example of the law of large numbers, right? That on a given month, we know that there's only going to be, you know, within a certain range, so many patients, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems that way to me. But also just to be, you know, the people that are in charge of running the operations, um, they are, if, if you might ask me now, okay, what happens if there's 25 people that need the bed? You know, they, hospitals are built in order to accommodate these um how should I say it? I don't want to say unusual, but um, extreme cases maybe. So they, they are aware, they do have equipment, like they can erect emergency tents, they can erect emergency spaces, they can use hallways if they need to, or cafeterias, which I know sounds horrific, but that is actually part of, it is a, it's part of the practice if you need to do it, you know? And so they, if you need to expand the capacity in a very quick manner, they do have the capacity to and the equipment to do that. So there's plans in place and procedural procedures in place, basically, where you know which rooms can be used for what purposes. Yeah, exactly. Um, procedures are a very good word. The thing I have learned is that there are a lot of procedures. Anytime there is anything, there is a procedure playbook for it. Maybe not coronavirus, but for everything else, there is they. You know, at the end of the day, you are relying on human beings, no matter how smart or organized they are. And so they do have their fallacies, just being human. So they they rely on these procedures. They create these procedures before they need to use them. And they do play through the scenarios so that when something happens, they do know how to, how to mobilize. One of the interesting thing I saw on the news the other day was how Japan is responding to an unexpected surge basically they they thought that they were dealing well with controlling the number of cases but it seems like there's been a spike recently and they found themselves lacking ppe so they can only have at a given time a limited number of nurses attending icu patients mm. and what they've done is they've reformatted one of their sort of coffee rooms where 
uh, nurses and doctors, you know, just relax into a room full of screens where there's a screen for every patient who is in another room, which is the ICU room just next door. And they're looking at all of the data and information about the patients from the room, but there's a very limited number of people in the ICU room itself taking care of those patients. And and I thought that's a pretty good example of, well, one, limiting the number of uh, PPE required, but two, also limiting the number of nurses required per patient, right? Or doctors required per patient. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, I have heard of and this is not a negative point at all. This is actually something they're proud of is, you know, again, I'm not the expert from, but from what I've understood, speaking to doctors and working on this with them to build my model is that when a nurse, a healthcare worker goes by to, they call it rounding, which is when they just go around to check on all the patients. Um, they're basically just checking their sign, their vital signs, basically whatever the equipment is relaying back to the nurse. Right. And you can do that virtually. You can put a, you know, you can have a screen on wheels, so to speak, that goes around and does it for you, so that the nerd, the healthcare worker doesn't need to be exposed to, first of all, the patient, but more importantly, the PPE consumption, because that really saves on your PPE consumption. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example of how this thing can get blown up. Gloves. Um, you change your gloves between every COVID patient. That's just part of the procedure. Um, you also change everything else is reusable. You change your gloves and your gown or depending, because uh, there's also PY patients, which are people under investigation. These are the people that suspected they might have coronavirus, but the lab has not confirmed yet. So these people are separated from the actual coronavirus patients until the lab results come out. So basically when dealing with different types of people, you have different PPE consumption. And, you know, if you have like 100 coronavirus patients, uh, I'm sure my math is not going to work out perfectly, but you do consume like at least 2,000 gloves a day. I'm not talking about pairs, individual gloves, so maybe 1,000 pairs of gloves a day. That's a lot, you know? So this type of, the idea of moving around, of having the healthcare worker be virtually attending the patients during their rounding uh, actually saves a lot of PPE. That's a really good example, but as you were saying it, I just thought that there's a procedural gap and I want to question it. So first you say the patients who are under investigation are put into a separate room and then if confirmed that the patient is has coronavirus, they will be allocated into the coronavirus patient room, right? But does not that, doesn't that increase the spread of coronavirus within that room? Because there will be patients who have coronavirus within that non sort of like under investigation room. And there will also be patients who don't have coronavirus. And I was just wondering, there, there probably isn't a better way to go about it. Yeah, I haven't, this idea of cross-contamination, I haven't, um, I haven't heard of any horror stories. 
basically they follow it. The setup is, is as follows. When you have a coronavirus patient next to a coronavirus patient, okay, they have coronavirus. So you're not really, you're not really concerned about the distance between the beds. The distance you're concerned about is just if the healthcare worker can move between the beds in a comfortable way so that you don't impede their work. But when it comes with people under investigation, you are concerned with the distance between the beds. Um, there's also this idea that they call hot zones and cold zones. And what this is, is where the patients are and six feet within that radius, that's called a hot zone. What that means is anyone who enters that zone needs to be wearing PPE. The cold zone is outside of that. This is where they have their supply carts that have the PPE. This is where the healthcare workers actually change. They call it donning and doffing. Doffing is like taking off your stuff and donning is putting on your stuff. So they have to be very careful about respecting these or being aware at least of these hot zones and cold zones because the cross-contamination risk, I think, comes more from the healthcare workers uh, if they forget for whatever reason, which they won't because they're extremely well trained. But you know what I mean? Like if they forget to change their gloves or if they forget to change their gowns in between dealing with patients, or if they're actually putting on or taking off PPE in the wrong place, in the hot zone when they shouldn't, or the cone zone when they shouldn't, that's where the risk of cross-contamination comes in. Um, but just having one person under investigation in a bed, maybe eight feet from another person in investigation with the bed, doesn't seem like there's any risk there. Uh, I know there's also been talk about um, airborne, the disease being airborne. Again, I'm not an infectious disease expert, but the directions I have received from the place I work and from the doctors that I speak to is there is a bit of a misconception, I think, in the media, because I have seen media articles talk about how it's an airborne. Other ones talk about it's not. Uh, from what I understand is you have your COVID patients, you also have your PUIs, but you also have things called high-risk procedures, which is probably when you really need to get involved, uh, or a healthcare worker really needs to get involved with, with a patient who has really bad conditions. In in a high-risk procedure, they, they do something called aer aerosolization, which is what turns the germs into, let's say, airborneness. I know I'm probably not explaining that eloquently because I don't know. I'm not the infectious disease expert, but I know that that's the case. So with high-risk procedures, you also need to incorporate airborne precautions. So with a high-risk procedure, you would not have someone who needs a high-risk procedure next to someone who's under investigation. There's no way. My guess would be high-risk procedures are done in their own rooms if, if they can. Um, I'm thinking about Italy. I don't know how Italy probably would have dealt with this situation. But anyway, so the mis I think there is a misconception. I think it's the airborneness only comes with certain procedures. It doesn't come with, it's not inherent with COVID. COVID itself, I do not believe is airborne. Mm -hmm. What I, what I've heard is that it is not airborne full stop. It is uh, only transferred through droplets, uh, you know, like saliva or Mm -hmm. Anything that comes out of your nose, mouth, or eyes, um, I wonder what can come out of your eyes. But uh, <laughs> but I guess your eyes can get affected if something does uh, fall into into them, right? So, but yeah, it, it's not airborne. You you can either touch something that had one of those um, particles and, and has the virus on a surface, and then 
if you touch your face, then it sort of goes there. But airborne is something different. It doesn't just fly about in the air. It has to be attached to a uh, moving um, liquid sort mm. of um, shape. Well, something that encircles it, right, and carries it. I see. Um, that's my non-scientific, non-biological uh, <laughs> explanation. <laughs> I feel like Donald Trump right now advising <laughs> that. <laughs> hey, you're doing, you're doing better. You're not telling me to drink bleach, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please, if anybody's listening to this, fact check anything I say. <laughs> yeah, I encourage that behavior. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I think that's a good note also to step away a little bit from uh, coronavirus and just ask you a little bit about mathematics. And uh, you studied mathematics at Berkeley. I just wanted to understand how on earth a kid from school falls in love with mathematics. <laughs> because um, I liked it. I wasn't bad at it, but but I didn't feel the love. And, and what's really what's really in it? that makes you love mathematics and makes you want to pursue a, a you know and study it and then a career so that that is that where mathematics and statistics is as at the core of it yeah it's a very good question i just want you to be aware that you're opening a can of worms where i can talk about this for until the day ends you know um it's just more <laughs> you've got question. a long day ahead I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, this, I think, touches on my personal journey. So the host, Sergey, and I, we were in the same math class in high school. And uh, I actually came, on our final exams in A-levels, I actually, I believe I came third last in mathematics in our grade. <laughs> and at the time, I was not feeling the love for mathematics. So it wasn't something that, you know, there wasn't like, I was born with this, curiosity for mathematics or I wasn't drawn to it naturally. I was a science kid. I was definitely drawn towards uh, physics and biology particularly, but mathematics was not my forte. And when I went to university, or actually I have to take a step back, um, what I learned in a nutshell is mathematics is not what we are exposed to in high school. And I don't want to fault an education system. Of course, if I were in charge of it, I would change what mathematics is taught in high school. But, you know, mathematics is such it's such an old field where there's so many different things to explore. It would be very difficult to condense it into some high school curriculum. And ultimately, their goal is probably to just teach you more of the um, functional things you can use, which are like calculus and engineering. Um, but mathematics is that that's a that's a small field of mathematics. Uh, I fell in love with it when I went to university and I went to university um, expecting to be a biology student. Um, I grew up in Europe. And if you went to university uh, for, let's say, biology or whatever in Europe, um, you can go directly to medical school after high school if you're interested in being a, in following that. But you could also go do biology if you're interested in doing that, right? In the United States, it's a bit different because you can't go directly into medical school after high school. Same with um, law. You can't go directly into law. So in America, you go to university, and all of a sudden, I started hearing these phrases called pre-med and pre-law, which is you study four years of whatever biology 
for the most part, in university in order to get good grades, in order to get into medical school later on. So when I went to university in the United States uh, with this extreme passion in biology, I literally went expecting to be the next Darwin. That was my goal. I was like, I'm going to sit down, uh, turn my house or my room into this experimental place with all these beakers and animals and whatever, and figure out some sort of new big theorem in biology. But I very quickly realized that, at least for my first two years, uh, I was surrounded by people that were extremely competitive, whose only goal was to outcompete you because they wanted to go to medical school. And I vividly remember my very first day in my first biology lecture in university. The professor said to us, 75% of you will not become doctors. You will not go to medical school. Only 25% of you will make it. And, you know, I was not part of, I, I was not there to do that. So I quite quickly fell out of love, not with the subject. I, I, in the beginning, I took it out on the subject, but it was more that I was not finding people to collaborate with. Uh, they were extremely competitive. They were not open to sharing ideas. They were more you know, insular with their stuff, more, more private. So I began to think, okay, maybe biology is not the thing for me. Now, just explain a little bit in our high school that we went to, we didn't really have the option of, you know, pursuing uh, photography or doing uh, arts at the same time as doing a science at the same time as doing a humanities. You know, we pretty much from our IGCSCs, we had to choose after that, did we want to do the science route or did we want to do more of the, I guess you'd call it the hum humanities route. Um, so I stuck to the science route. So in university, I started thinking, you know, I've never done anything out of my comfort zone. So maybe deep down, I'm the best economist out there and I just don't know it yet, you know? So I said to myself, okay, let me drop biology and let me start, um, let me dip my toes into other subjects. All of this though, I know I'm talking about dropping biology, all of it was driven by biology itself. So I'll give you an anecdote. I first tried economics. I first thought, let me try economics. Uh, maybe that's my passion that I don't know about. And the reason I chose economics was because I realized um, if you asked a, an economist to explain natural selection, they would say it's supply and demand. And so I started thinking perhaps, perhaps different subjects are just speaking about the same thing, so to speak. They're just expressing it in different ways or they just have different perspectives on seeing the same information out there in the real world. You know, an economist will say supply and demand, a biologist will say, natural selection and competition. Um, so I tried economics. I don't want to bash on it too much, but it wasn't for me. Uh, I quickly discovered that I did not enjoy the fact that you could, <laughs> you could argue either end of a question and get it right. I think there was a famous quote by uh, an American president who said, show me a one-handed economist because there's always, an economist is always, well, on one hand, you can do this. And on the other hand, you can do this. So I definitely had my gripes with that. Um, but I did realize that I was, because of that, I must be more inclined towards these definite answers. So Can I just say there's also the concept of the invisible hand in the markets. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I would be very careful with, uh, you know, with that, with that quote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. So... Then I tried my hand at computer science because at the university I studied at, it was the hot thing to do, not only because Berkeley is a very good destination for computer science, but also 
the Bay Area, the area that I live in, this is like Silicon Valley. So this is where all the jobs are for pursuing computer science, software engineering, computer architecture, data engineering, whatever, um, data analysis, data science, et cetera. So I tried my hand at computer science, and this is where I started my path towards mathematics. So I realized that, at least in the way we were being taught, um, in order to solve our homeworks or our projects, you had to first think mathematically. You had to first solve a puzzle, and then the last step you did was translate your answer into computer language, into like Python, for example. But you first had to sit down with the problem and really figure out the puzzle, and then realize, aha, this is, this is the logic that I need to now translate. So I enjoyed that part. I enjoyed that puzzle solving part. Um, but as time went on, I was really focused on this puzzle solving aspect and less about the translating into actual code aspect, which a lot of people do find fun. Another part of it is also I did not enjoy the lifestyle. <laughs> people studying computer science where I studied at university had no life. You know, they, you had no time to go outside. It was a heavy workload and a very difficult subject. So I was gravitating more towards this puzzle solving idea. At the same time, I was thinking about how can I be a bit more social with my life and a bit more free. But anyway, so I realized that going back now, tying it back to biology, is um, writing a computer code, writing a function, to me, was a lot like designing an organism in the sense that for the most part, there's mutations, there's little bugs in your code. Like in nature, most mutations don't actually result in anything, um, in anything, in anything that you can visibly see because it just breaks down, just like computer code. But once in a while, you do get an outcome. You, you know, you you do write a function with the bug, and you get an outcome that is not right. You know, you look at it and you're like, how the hell did I get that as an outcome? And it's because you had to debug something. To me, that was a little analogous to having a mutation in an organism that actually results in something. Um, as opposed to the mutation not resulting in anything at all. So I, I found some parallels there, and I realized that writing computer code is a bit like designing the skeleton of an organism, designing the infrastructure for which it has to run in. But the mathematics is the DNA. The mathematics is what is running the actual logic of that organism, so to speak. So mathematics to me became, I, I, when I had that realization, I kind of saw it as a gateway to um, knowledge in a sense. And so parallel to this, I was taking a mathematics class where the professor was brilliant and he showed me for the first time in my life what a mathematical proof is. And now I know there's, gonna, there's probably going to be some people listening to this who in high school have done mathematical proofs. You and I have not done them, right? I, I, I'd, I've done like I've done proofs in sixth grade, okay, but I'm not I'm sure they're not the kind of proofs you're talking about. But in the in the Russian school system, we are taught to prove certain uh, geometrical sort of uh, truths and ax not not axioms, but uh, certain sort of well the Pythagorean theorem, right? We were taught yeah. how to prove them, right? I don't think we were taught that as part of our uh, English curriculum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is that yeah. what you're talking about? But that's, a little that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, so in my high school experience, I never did a single proof. I was just solving problems. I was applying formulas, memorizing them, and solving problems. So the professor showed me what a math proof is, you know, 
And from that moment on, when I decided to pursue mathematics, uh, all it was was proofs. I, I think I went through my entire four years. First of all, I never used a calculator. We were not allowed. And the other thing is, in terms of an actual number, I only saw the number one, zero, negative one, and the imaginary number i. I never really came across any other number for four years of studying mathematics. It was all about applying logic, and it was all about proofs. And that's when I really fell in love, because I realized that this is such an old art in itself, but also the power. Like, if you are someone who is interested in saying at the end of your day, I pursued absolute truth, there, like I have absolutely 100% confidence in the things that I'm saying and the things that I'm learning is the truth. It is not going to change in 100 years. It's not going to change in 2,000 years, you know? Mathematics does provide you that comfort uh, because you are studying something, you are applying logic that you are building on people's work from thousands or hundreds of years ago. You're, you're participating in this discussion of absolute truth. And the thing that really blew my mind was I remember when I was sitting down doing an exam and we were doing statistics, Poisson distribution. And uh, this question came up and the, it was the last question on the exam. And it was um, basically, uh, given what you know, can you calculate the probability that there's life in the universe outside of Earth? And it just blew my mind the fact that there, I can use what I know of Poisson distribution to actually arrive at an answer, even though, okay, the answer is about 51%, if I remember. Even though that doesn't mean that there's guaranteed life in the universe. It's the fact that I was able to perform that calculation with confidence, and I can actually talk about that, you know? I can talk about, I can sit down with a piece of paper and a pencil and tell you what's happening on the other side of the universe, you know, some very dramatic, some very violent things, what's happening with planets, what's happening with orbits, you know? The fact that I can do that with a piece of paper and a pencil, to me, was just this realization that I can do anything. I think the main thing I pulled out of mathematics, aside from my love for mathematics, which I'm happy to talk about more, is the confidence. Like, um, going back to my job, doctor, my clients who are doctors, they have high egos, extremely high egos, because they're really intelligent people, and they've gone through a lot of training, you know, for their medical school, and the amount of knowledge that's in their brain. So they have extremely high egos. I feel like the only thing that's allowing me to balance it out is knowing that I studied mathematics because I, I know that I did something extremely difficult and I have this extreme confidence that if I can do mathematics, I can do anything. You know, there's not, there's not anything I can't do if I'm able to tell you that there's 51% chance that there's life in the universe. Like, what is there that I can't do? You know what I mean? <laughs> that's an awesome feeling. By the way, is that a, is that a true number? I, it is. I believe it's over 50%. I believe it's, it's 51%. It's more likely than not. Yes. Okay. Um, that's for another time. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you say that maths is about the absolute truth. Yeah. And I see that. And I agree with it. And I love the pursuit and the confidence in that. But is it really the absolute truth? Because it's a man-made concept, isn't it? That is such a uh, existential. Is it? Is it a man-made concept or is it a discovery? That's, I think that's the eternal question. So you, you, you sounds like are of the opinion that it's a man-made concept. 
I think I know very little on the subject, but my skeptical side would argue that it is indeed a man-made concept, and it's a language that has been created in order to explain what we see, and basically it's an observation, observational language that codes in the recurrences that happen in nature. Again, a non-scientific uh, explanation of how I perceive maths. Yeah. But, but that's that's how I look at it. And I just, is it really, you know, if I say that one is one and three yeah. is three, is it really true? I, I know it's a very philosophical question and it could open a very big hole in this discussion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a very good question and it's a fair, like you said, this is my unscientific. It's a very fair thing to say, actually is because i do agree it is a language you know it is a language that we have in that sense constructed in the sense of like how we symbolize it um to describe this whole it started with us trying to describe what we actually see so the number one was meant to represent a pattern such as the number three like when i say the number one you think of one stick and when you think of three you think of three sticks there's that's the number one stick three times so it's like we are. We did construct this language to, in, like you said, in some way to describe our observational world. Um, and then some. And then along the road, some some weird things happen. And I think the first one was the discovery of the number pi. So, the thing that gets me out of whack, which is where I'm thinking, is this a discovery or is this some sort of inherent thing in the universe? What is mathematics? Um, again, like. You do find mathematical philosophers that spend their entire lives thinking about this specific question. So I'm not going to be able to offer an explanation as good as theirs. But um, something, I guess, the challenge, perhaps your point of view, is the idea of a uh, mathematical constant, not constant, sorry, of a, um, wow, why am, I, why am I blanking? What do you call the number pi? Irrational numbers. Okay. Yeah, the existence of, of these... Um, of these naturally occurring irrational numbers is bizarre because when you think about it why are we able to come across the number pi and why are we able to find pi in everything no matter where we are in the universe it's like first of all we cannot express pi to its finite digits right we, it by definition is this forever irrational number just along with the number e for exponential growth along with some like uh, Planck's constant which describes more like quantum mechanics um, we come across these values, which it seems like, why are they in the universe to begin with? How can we find them? Why did we find them? Why, why are they in the places that we found them? How can pi, which describes the relationship of the circle between a circumference and its radius or diameter, sorry. Um, how can we find that occurring in, um, planetal orbits in gravitational mathematics in, uh, I haven't done string theory, but I'm sure you find universal constants there too, you know? So how can we come across these bizarre behavior numbers, so to speak, values that pop up in places we don't expect them to, and they're always there, and they always have the same value? For me, that's strange. And I think that's, that's, that's where I start to question, how can this thing be man-made if we are coming across these naturally occurring numbers or values or whatever you want to call them, 
I'm probably not being as eloquent as I should right now. But um, how can we come across these things that make no sense to us if this is man-made? I'm going to ask a very simple question, right? Because I know very little about the number. But my argument would be here that if you look for something, you're going to find it. And there is a lot of circles in our universe. And every circle has a diameter. And that relationship is the number pi, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, am I heading in the right direction here? So basically, what uh, what... It sounds like every circle in the universe we stumble upon will have the number pi within its relationship with diameter. So what's so surprising about the number pi? Uh, or where else do you see it and you come across it that is really striking you? Um, pi is a very good example. Fortunately, I don't know as much about it as I should, but an odd one it, for me might be exponential growth of just how, okay, let, let's take a small tangent. And uh, if, you, if you come across a mathematician, you, you can ask them, what is your favorite formula? Because we do have one. <laughs> that is how nerdy we are. We do have favorite formulas. I do have a favorite formula. And... It is, um, it's one of, this mathematician's name is Euler. It's one of, one of his, uh, one of his identities, but it's E to the power of I pi equals, uh, negative one. Yes. I, I believe that is it. I believe it's negative one and not positive one. I'm a terrible mathematician for not knowing that, especially since <laughs> it's my favorite formula. But, um, the reason I find that such a, it's my favorite formula and um, it's actually quite a popular, beautiful formula, is because it's so elegant, so concise. And on one hand, I think it provides an explanation for what the number one is, because e to the i pi equals one. So it provides a definition for what the number one is, and it's a very strange definition. And then just looking at the left-hand side, e i pi, bizarre. We have two. Con we have two of these irrational numbers. We have e exponential growth, something something to do with exponential growth something to do with pi, and then we have this imaginary number i, and somehow all that behavior put together gives you the number one. So not to get into the weeds of the mathematics of it, but just think about conceptually of this weird definition of the number one. You know, it, for me, it's not, it wasn't what I expected. And I know that this identity or this, this theorem is, is applied in a very different manner, but it's just such a very elegant and concise way to really, I think, describe a lot of mathematics. You know, we, a lot of, like I said, the number one, we use that in our numerical analysis and our understanding of high school mathematics. Everything is built off of the number one. Number one gives you two, gives you three, gives you four, et cetera. Everything is an addition of one or a multiplication of one or a fraction of some sort of these different combinations and whatever. So we have, in a sense, in this simple formula, we have a, almost a complete description of mathematical behavior. Um, it just arrives from all these values, imaginary numbers, pi, e, these things that just don't, I think, inherently make sense to us. And these things that we have stumbled across as we explore mathematics. I know this is getting into this abstract garden, but I hope that was a fair explanation. Just so that I understand this as well, because I wrote the formula down and I, 
like you said, E being the exponential growth, pi being pi, and this imaginary number I, right? What is that exactly? And why do you use that in, in maths? What is I? Yeah. I, as a definition, is the square root of negative one. Why, what is I? Uh, conceptually, speaking to someone who doesn't study mathematics, I think it's a very difficult, uh, like unfortunately this kind of describing what I is. Can I just ask something about this number? Yeah. There is no square root of anything that is negative, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we came across this problem in mathematics um, probably 200, 300 years ago. And it's a, so a lot of mathematics is cheating in a sense that I, make, I can make a theorem right now. I can just create a theorem. I can define it. And then you can go out and you can test it. And then you can come back to me and you can say, you know, I found a counterexample to your theorem. The number one, for example, breaks your theorem. And then I can go back and say, okay, I'll redefine my definition to say blah, 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 except when dealing with the number one. I can do that. It's, it's a bit of a hack, but I can do that. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a hack with how we, we dealt with the square root of negative one. We kept coming across the square root of negative one, and we couldn't, with our understanding of mathematics at the time, we had to stop there. We couldn't find, we couldn't move forward. And I believe it was Euler. Uh, the mathematician who first said, let's just call the square root of negative one i so that we can continue our calculations. And he defined its behavior by saying, okay, if i is the square root of negative one, then i squared is negative one. You know what I mean? So all of a sudden we got this strange definition of one of negative one and the square root of negative one, but it worked with our mathematics. We were able to continue our calculations and answer the questions you know we were able to arrive at answers that did apply we could use in our real world and it worked it wasn't like things started breaking or buildings started falling or whatever um so in a strict definition i is the square root of negative one but i as a concept appears in a lot of mathematics uh, complex analysis and etc and it takes on a different form uh, i has to do a lot with uh, coordinates coordinates in uh, imaginary space, so to speak. You have Cartesian space, you have all these other spaces you can deal with. And so when you deal with different types of mathematics, I becomes more of a, I think, a navigation tool. It describes more about how things are reflected or how you're moving points as you're operating functions on them, etc. So it's more of a mathematical object, which to be honest, that's how I now think of mathematics. I think of everything I encounter as objects with behaviors, not necessarily as numbers themselves, but you know, they're communicating some sort of concept and I can do things to them and I can change them and I can either put them in different, I can either change the value of them or I can completely change my space. You know, instead of thinking of X, Y, and Z, I can now think of four dimensional space or I can play around, with, I can redefine X, Y, and Z, etc. So these are tools that we can use to really explore mathematics further, if that makes sense. I really enjoy how you explain everything because it's it's a lot more relatable than it was to me back in high school on paper, at least, you know? <laughs> um, not, that, not that I came across I in high school, certainly we did across pi, um, and our teachers seem to have been very fascinated with it. I just thought, well, okay, uh, big deal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it is a big deal, and I, I'm, 
I wanted to say I see why, but I certainly don't yet. Um, <laughs> but I can see why. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. Um, but I don't want to go too deep out of my depth because I've already been there far too long within this conversation. <laughs> um, I want to ask you something about a book you've gifted me recently, which I want to thank you for again. Um, I thought that this book was very interesting, if not the most interesting book that I've read, because it came to my hands in in a time when I was able to read it. And by that, I mean I had read about the subject sig significantly and that it was sort of like the the summary and a good roundup of things I knew or suspected or was leaning towards and it sort of just confirmed everything and and also explained how some of these things work so the book is lifespan why we age and don't have to mm -hmm. by sinclair what's his first name david david sinclair i believe he's a professor yeah he is a professor at harvard yeah yeah so i wanted to ask you what are the things that you were most fascinated by within the book and the, the key takeaways that had an impact on you yeah um, so similarly, like to yourself, I felt like this book arrived at a opportune moment in my life. Um, one, on one hand, I do have a, I did build up this passion of reading, so I was able to sit down and read it. But on the other hand, just serendipitously, co coincidentally, at work, I was actually working with ICD-10 codes. ICD-10 codes are um, how how um, medical professional this is icd-10 codes are actually made by the uh, world health organization and that this is how you bucket how you diagnose how you diagnose so like if i diagnose you with um gerd or something like that there's a code for it it might be like i'm making this up but it might be like j19.01 that's the code that actually means uh the the specific name of the diagnosis so if I if my doctor diagnosed me with I don't know um, influenza, there's a code for that, and so we've broken down basically every single thing we can diagnose into these different buckets of coding. So I was I it just so happened I was working on that I was actually modeling at the time um, codes uh, or I should say I was trying to track different diagnoses throughout the year so that I can see if there's any seasonality to specific ones or if there's some that are on the rise that we should be aware of. Um, so it just so happened that I was very familiar with 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 ICD-10 codes and diagnoses. And as a result, looking at diseases and the behavior or the seasonality of diseases and the volume of diseases, etc. So then this book arrived uh, in my hands and I read it. And the gist of the book although I don't want to speak too much for it because uh, it makes a lot of good points, is essentially, one, it provides a definition uh, for a disease in the sense that, oh, sorry, for aging, for aging, in the sense that uh, the author wanted to inspire 
us to kind of break away from the mentality that aging is this inevitable, mystical, magical part of life uh, where ancient people like the ancient Greeks and whatever, Romans, they would always poetically speak about life and death as this thing that you cannot avoid and there is absolutely like everything that you do exists in between life and death and those are the things you can control but life and death itself are almost this cosmic constants that you can't it's just this magical part of life in a sense right well the author of this book kind of tries to make the point that actually aging itself can be thought of as a disease in the sense that you can treat it we should not think about it in the sense we should break away from the sense that there's absolutely nothing you can do about aging to actually investigating and thinking about this. Is this something that we can treat? And the author makes a very good analogy comparing it to other diseases, for example, Alzheimer's, dementia, et cetera, Parkinson's, diseases that come with age in our lives uh, for the most part. And so he made this analogy of a river where basically uh, if you imagine the source of a river and as it flows down, it breaks off into smaller veins or tributaries. All those smaller veins are these diseases that relate to aging, like dementia or Alzheimer's. And we, we tackle those things. We put a lot of money, a lot of research and a lot of treatments and to try to tackle those things. But because these things are fundamentally born from aging itself, why don't we tackle aging as a source? And so that's one point he makes, which is let's break away from this idea of inevitable death or aging. I shouldn't say death, aging, to thinking more about how can we actually treat aging. So that's the first point. And the second point is the author does provide a definition on the molecular level of what aging is. And that really has, has stuck with me, uh, partly because before I read this book, I realized I never really questioned what aging was. Um, if you had asked me before this book, hey, Nikos, what is aging? My answer would be something about the symptoms of aging. I would say it's well, it's when you get wrinkly skin. It's when you get shorter because your bones are getting less dense and they're you know pushed together. You get all these back pains and ache pains and all these health problems and you know you can't play sports anymore. Like I would just be describing the symptoms of aging, but I would not be talking about aging itself. And so the author provides a molecular definition of aging and what it is, uh, without trying to butcher it too much. Hopefully, is it's essentially a, a distraction from your from your the proteins in your molecule in your in your cells, sorry. It's a distraction from the normal chores. So as the chore as as the proteins, as they're trying to uh, copy your DNA or do whatever they have to do, the housekeeping, the maintenance around your cell, their normal tasks. Whenever we introduce these disturbances, for example, radiation or um, just having unhealthy habits that really affect our cells and really damage. It's really more about the damage. This kind of distraction that pulls our, our cellular functions from doing their normal things, from their housekeeping to now doing other things. The author makes the example of a fireman where the fireman is at home doing their normal tasks. But if there's a fire in a building constantly, then the fireman is never at home. and They always have to deal with the chaos, the emergency. That means that the things at home start getting broken down, wear and tear. Um, that is aging in the cell. So whenever we introduce these disturbances, uh, our cells age. And there's more to it. There's more to it because we have a lot of research now that these people have done. And the author really spells out what it means to age uh, for your cells. For example, your cells, 
they do they do hit a point where they stop multiplying they stop you know it's called senescence where they mm. just stop they, they just wrinkle up and die um the the things that we do to cause disturbances speed up that process and so i don't think the author was trying to make the point of hey immortality is around the corner but i do think the author was making the point of this is what aging is on a molecular level and because it is on the molecular level there are things that you can do in your life to actually slow down the process of aging. Um, so in a sense, that goes back to your idea of treating aging and the diseases that can come out of it. Um, you know, it really provides a framework to just thinking about it in a different way. Now, why did I say this arrived at an opportune moment? Uh, because there's the ICD-10 codes that I spoke about, and the number 10 is just a revision. There's also going to be an ICD-11 code and a 12 code and a 13 code. And I don't know the frequency of how much we update this, but I think it might be around every five years or so. But ICD-11 is coming out in 2021 or 2022. And as I was working on my work with the department that I was doing my work for, when I came across ICDs in the book that we're talking about, I did mention to the person who runs the emergency department, like, hey, you know, I'm just, I'm just curious. Um, there's going to be the new ICD-11 codes coming out. How do we adopt these? Um, is it going to be when they're released? Or, or sorry, not when they're released, but the guideline is everyone should have adopted them by 2022 or 2021. So are we going to adopt them then? Are we going to slowly adopt them now? How does this thing work? And the reason I asked that was because in the ICD-11 code list, the new list that will come out, for the first time ever, there is a code that has to do with aging. So what that means for me and the data that I work with is it means that I will now be able to visualize and track aging as a disease and how that how we diagnose that. How, the, how does that change over time? Are there things that we can do that actually lower the curve of aging? You know what I mean? So now we actually have we will have data to work with. And I think that's really exciting. And so this book arrived at a good moment because I just so happened to be working with this. So I, I was familiar with what this means for my work and what this might mean for medical facilities moving forward. It's you explained it really well, and I think you captured the essence of the book really well. The reason why it came to my hands in a very good moment was because for now over a year or so, I've been sort of reading about nutrition. I've been on a an intermittent uh, fasting sort of diet, if you can call it. It's not a diet, but I've been fasting intermittently following 16-8, and I just grew more interested about this subject and topic. I primarily did the 16-8 because as a, as a test really i was never a fan of diets or these sort of routines but i thought that there is some sense in um, autophagy although i don't think 16-8 is enough to trigger autophagy um, but it's just good to give your organism maybe a break that's just my feeling and also when i tried it i just felt like it benefited me in, in how I felt and it was so easy to do and I just felt more alert and more energetic that I thought on day two I think I, I said to myself this is how I'm going to live the rest of my life 
Mm. Not because I believe in it. I don't know enough about it to believe in it. I'm inclined to, 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 you know, I have an inclination to, to think that it's beneficial, uh, more beneficial than harmful. But it was so easy and I enjoyed the fact that I didn't have to make breakfast in the morning and I could just sort of get out of my bed and it was sort of, it, it was a, a truth that I held for so long that I needed to have breakfast and that every morning I would wake up a little bit earlier to have that breakfast. But then I stopped. But anyway, to go back to why this book sort of, what I found most interesting in the book was that talking about those firemen being at home and leaving to to correct uh, an issue to uh, put out a fire there is a conflicting signal within our body sometimes whereby we our cells are able to do one or the other usually right they can either reproduce or they can restore and heal themselves right through that process of firemen arriving and and uh, fixing the place up. Mm-hmm. Epigenetic noise, I think he calls uh, the process of firemen getting lost and going from one place to another. But yeah. what I found really interesting, and it's an easy concept to understand, and that's what really was powerful for me, is that when we are doing harmful things to our body, smoking, or when we're exposed to radiation, or when... Um, we are eating too much sugar, we are causing those firemen to come and address those problems far too often. Mm-hmm. But here's the catch, right? On its own, not necessarily so bad, right? The problem also comes in the conflicting messages that our behaviors are telling our bodies and cells to not just heal themselves in a given moment, but also to reproduce. Because our firemen are busy correcting the DNA that has been damaged, but we're also eating enough to um, basically trigger growth within our bodies. We're triggering IGF-1 hormone, which is basically a hormone that results in muscle growth and protein triggers, uh, especially meat protein, triggers the production of IGF-1 hormone. And this hormone is acting at the same time as the firemen are trying to fix it. And sometimes the firemen don't fix the fire in time before this IGF-1 comes in and duplicates and replicates the cell. And now you have a damaged, damaged cell. And that's basically a gap in the process of how our um, body should function because the simple truth should be the following you're either fixing yourself up you're healing yourself right in terms of being a cell or you're reproducing you cannot do both at the same time because something's going to go wrong and Mm -hmm. i enjoyed how he explained it throughout the book because that's the very beginning of the book right where he goes and he says that that is how cells have come about and they've survived so many different um, times during, you know, I don't know how long, you know, the first cell has been around for, but there's been very significant events where things just died out, 
but cells mm. were able to survive because they went from one mode to another. But if you have a conflicting signal, you're going to get confused and you might not function in the way that nature has designed initially in an efficient, you might not function in an efficient way. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So because you are really interested in nutrition, did you find that, did you have um, a different takeaway from the book as it relates to aging? Like, did you relate to it in a different way? Do you well, not think I, about aging in a different way, basically? I'm not convinced that we can extend our lifespans as much as the author suggests, or that we can live infinitely long if we follow certain rules and take certain substances. I'm not convinced. But like you, I enjoyed understanding the biology behind aging and i'm trying not to follow the idea of um what's the right name for it i'm blanking out as well now when you believe in something so you only uh, find data that uh, you know proves you're right um yeah. something what biased. is it um it's positive uh, um anyway Reinforcement or bias? I know one of those two words yeah, is involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's re- reinforcement, positive reinforcement or something like that, yeah. Um, but it just, it, it was a simple explanation of uh, many things that I'd come across. And also, you know, I am interested in nutrition, but I have read, I think, um, a bit. I know nowhere near enough, uh, you know, as as this author or people working in the field or people, you know, more interested in it. But the more I read about nutrition, the more I understood that we just don't know anything about it, mm-hmm. and there isn't one way to 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 really live by when it comes to nutrition. Anybody who says that there is, um, I just think they know very little. And anybody with a very vocal opinion about nutrition, my immediate reaction is being very careful about listening to their advice. I think there are certain truths that we've been able to prove. And I think that is that sugars are bad. And that is just about all I know about nutrition. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. This fasting thing, it's a religious thing. I do it because I, well, somewhat believe and it works for me and it's a routine. That's it. But I know that sugar is bad. Just like I I know smoking is bad. So I try to avoid sugars. I try to avoid smoking. I try to Mm -hmm. avoid smoke. And I enjoyed how this book puts all of these truths into a context of biology and also then presents this argument of, well, actually, if you did these seven or eight steps in terms of addressing these gaps, you could potentially extend your lifespan to, you know, beyond 150 into 100 years. Yeah. Um, I think on this, because we keep mentioning the word lifespan now, the another important point that I took out of the book is the difference between health span and lifespan. Yeah. Because, yeah, the author tries to make the point of even if we increase our lifespan, which just means we can live longer, if we don't increase our health span at the same time, basically, if if we are 90 years old, 
versus 110 years old, but our health is abysmal, then is there a point to increasing, you know, will you as the individual find value in increasing your lifespan or as a society? So it's also important to think about increasing the health span, the amount of time you are your body, you and your body is healthy. Certainly. And I, there's, I think I've spoken about him earlier today, Peter Atia focuses a lot about both one is lifespan and health span is very interesting to listen to on this topic. He's got a number of podcasts um, on the subject. It's also very interesting how lifespan on its own, increasing lifespan on its own might create a, an economic and political burden for our mm -hmm. society, but increasing the health span balances it out and perhaps even improves it right because you don't need to retire as early if you are active and healthy um when you're you know 64 right um today that's the age of retirement in some countries i believe right but mm -hmm. you don't need to retire until 80 or 90 if you're able to operate and th and that might be really bad news for some people and i know some people really take it in a bad way but um, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that we can do during our work. And he, the author does suggest that we can have several careers. Um, some people would complain that they have, uh, you know, about marriage and how marriage works in, in a lifespan that is a lot longer. <laughs> um, each to their own here. Yeah. I don't know. But we can't model that. But what we could model is the impact of health span on the economy couldn't we do yeah. that it's <laughs> a good point yeah it, yeah it'd be very interesting it's an interesting thing to think about but talking about this what do you think is going to happen with divorce rates with the lockdown <laughs> uh, um i have floated that question to many friends and from different countries and each one has told me something funny some of my friends from, um, I guess it doesn't really matter what country they're from, but some of my friends have said, yeah, in my country, divorce rates have skyrocketed. <laughs> and okay, we don't need to humor ourselves as to guess as to why. But, um, you know, other places I've heard, like adoption rates for animals and for animals in particular, for animals uh, has risen as well. So like, it seems like their relationships have only strengthened. Um, I'm actually reading a book right now it's called a defining decade uh i am if shamefully it escapes me who the author is at the moment but she is um she really talks about people in their 20s and it just talks about you know just talks about your decade of the 20s and how defining it is and one of the things she talks about is marriage or specifically cohabitation which is the idea of living together as a test to see if it's if it's a good idea to live together permanently as a marriage kind of thing and according to the research that she brings up, she actually says marriages do far better when you jump right into it, like the old traditional style, as opposed to testing the waters out. And it has more to do with the public statement you're making. Like it's a more powerful statement to say, I'm getting engaged to, mm, because now everyone in your, in your community is aware of the commitment that you are taking as opposed to having this kind of like slider effect, which is kind of like taking these baby steps of saying, yeah, we're trying to first start living together, see how that works. Cause you're not actually making a strong public statement. You're not, you know, in a sense, you're not internalizing the commitment. 
Um, so hold on, hold on. Does the author suggest then that we the m- marriages are more successful because people care about what other people think about their marriages, or is it the 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 the, the difference in behaviors around? It, them? It's it's not about the people. It's about the how you internalize the commitment that you're making. Like I can live with my girlfriends and say, you know, like, like come live with me for two, three weeks, four weeks, whatever, and we'll share the food. We'll figure it out, you know, whatever we'll do. But when I when I talk about it to my friends, I'm not saying I'm planning on marrying this person. You know, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying I'm making a commitment to this person. So although yes, I've kind of haphazardly kind of told myself in a jokingly way, all right, let's see if this works out because I like you, and we'll see if this you know for the future. Actually. I'm not think I'm I have not internalized the commitment. It's you know my behavior or my way of thinking. It's it's kind of the same as inviting a friend over to stay with me for a month or two. You know what I mean? So although we are kidding ourselves in a sense of taking these baby steps, it's actually not a committed step. So you're not you're not actually testing the wall. You're not doing what you what your goal was to do. Now I should also say that the author does point out marital research is extremely all over the place. Like this is. It's a difficult science, you know. So while she brings up this research and the data, she's not she's not saying therefore you should totally definitely not live together and get married in the old fashioned way. She's not saying that. She's just saying like it's more of a commentary on. Uh, I, I believe she's a psychoanalyst. I believe that was her profession, and she's really just. Um, reflecting on her clients who were in their 20s and what they were saying you know how they were approaching life how they were approaching careers and marriage and finding a life partner and really thinking about those types of things so she's really just reflecting and bringing up the data to aid the conversation but i don't think she's making a point you know she's not making a conclusion yeah yeah well, I live with two flatmates, um, and I think it's developed me as a, as a, as a person. One of them likes to say that his divine purpose in, in him being next to me is to make me a better human being. <laughs> you can guess who that one is. <laughs> you were in the same car with him going to yeah. school. <laughs> he, he believes that he is there to make me a better human being. I think the tables have turned though, and I'm trying to work on him now. <laughs> yeah. But certainly now we're we're really enjoying the vibes, and um, I'm so fortunate to be with them. And that's not a statement. Uh, just like to to wrap this up as a, an official statement. As part of the yeah. podcast is that I enjoy living with my housemates in case they do listen <laughs> until the end of this podcast. Um, but I think living with people teaches you a lot about yourself. Yeah. yeah. Also, living alone probably does that. And that's another topic about the lockdown. But hey, I think it's good time to wrap up the discussion. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Great. I, me as well, man. I was really talking to you. It was, it passed so quickly and learned loads. So look after yourself. Keep doing the great job you're doing. And I look forward to having many more of these discussions, maybe without a mic and somewhere in Tokyo, like we were planning. <laughs> Today was the day when we were going to fly, by the way. Today you know was, the, yeah, yeah.
Yeah, uh, painfully. Yeah, today was the day. And how ironic is it that we connected today? Yeah. <laughs> wow, totally unplanned. I, I was not thinking about that uh, as we were connecting today. Just total coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure it will happen. I'm sure it will. Hey there. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you have any thoughts or feedback, whether positive or negative, it is all constructive to me. So please leave it either in the comments or drop me a message. I would love to hear what you think. But for now, look after yourselves and take care.